A great speech can change the course of human history. That may seem like an extreme statement, but it's really true, even just in the shortness of American history. There are certain speeches that have been delivered that are just lodged into our consciousness. You didn't have to be there to hear it. In fact, you probably weren't. I'm going to give three examples of speeches that moved our country in a certain direction uh, that you probably know, or at least you know the line that I'm going to give to you here. Patrick Henry stood at the Virginia Convention when it was being decided whether the, the, what was then just America, the new country, whether we should uh, overthrow British rule and become independent. And Patrick Henry famously stood and said, give me liberty or give me death. You know that line. Abraham Lincoln stood and gave the Gettysburg Address. He said four score and seven years ago. That was only a two-minute address, believe it or not. But in two short minutes, Abraham Lincoln called our country to unite for the sake of freedom in honor of those who had died on that battlefield. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial with 250,000 people in attendance and gave his most famous speech, I Have a Dream. And he talked about what it would look like if we destroyed the barriers of racism and reconciled together and lived out a new way of life. See, a great speech moves people to potentially world-changing action. A great speech echoes down through the generations. We'll always remember those speeches as long as there's an America to remember them. And I, and I think those are good examples that maybe make my point. But those three speeches, and, and really any speech that you hold up, can't even begin to compare to what we're going to look at today, what we're going to begin to look at today, something called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, without question, this is not just my opinion, this is, this is considered fact. It is the most famous, the most influential, the most challenging speech or sermon message that's ever been delivered. People have studied it now for 20 centuries, and it has never lost its edge. The Sermon on the Mount is every bit as, as profound, it's every bit as relevant today as it ever was. And the reason for that, of course is because of the one who spoke it. The reason is, it's the very word of God, the divine son of God delivered this message to us, recorded in the book of Matthew. And I say this with a fair amount of confidence, if, if 100,000 years from now, people are still walking around on this earth, or hovering, or whatever it will be at that point, okay? If people are still here in 100,000 years, they're still gonna be pouring over these words. Always and forever, these words will have an impact, a shaping impact, on the world. And we have the privilege of looking over these words over the next several weeks. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. But I, you know, as we approach it, as we open up uh, th this sermon today, I, you know, uh, it comes with a fair warning. Let me give you a fair warning. That what, what Jesus is going to say to us, it, it kind of functions like a surgeon's scalpel. That Jesus is going to spend three chapters showing us what it really looks like for a person to be shaped by the heart of God. That Jesus is going to constantly deliver truths in that regard that sting us, that are difficult for us to hear. It's a sermon that confronts us with the reality of God's great righteousness, which the scripture says, of course, we cannot in ourselves measure up to. And yet Jesus is going to set the standard. He's going to set the bar for what it looks like to follow him and to be a righteous person. This is why D.A. Carson says, every time I come to the Sermon on the Mount, I am both drawn to it and I'm shamed by it. It is at the same time utterly beautiful 
and it exposes us. It can be difficult to read. So I'm just going to say this up front. I'm going to say this over and over as we walk through these chapters, okay? But I'm going to say it today too. This sermon is full of ethical commands and moral guidelines, but it's not moralism, and there's a huge difference. Moralism is the idea that there is a standard God has established that you and I, in our own effort, we must live up to it if God is going to love and accept and bless us. That you've got to be a certain kind of person in order for God to love you and then let you in. And see, that's not the message of Jesus. That's not the message of the scriptures. We come to God exclusively on the basis of grace. Grace is a gift. We come to God on the basis of grace because of something Jesus did for us, not what we do for him. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. And so what we see here in Matthew is not Jesus saying, become a certain kind of person in order for God to accept you. It's not how it works. What Jesus is really communicating to us is, this is the kind of person that grace produces. Only grace. You and I by ourselves will never achieve what Jesus is telling us to do here. But by his grace, we can and we will. Okay? And so look with me at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Matthew sets the stage for us. He gives us the context. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had uh, accumulated now a great crowd of followers. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, we could do a whole sermon on that one verse, believe it or not. I'm just going to give you a little snippet here of what I think is going on. I want you to know that Jesus right here is being portrayed as the true and greater Moses. If you uh, know your Old Testament, back in the book of Exodus, Moses, the man that God called to lead Israel, he walks down the mountain with the Ten Commandments in his hand. He delivers God's law to God's people, the people of Israel. Well, here Jesus takes his place on the mountain, and he delivers to us the true heart of God's law. Jesus is going to give us, in a sense, the final word, the word straight from the mouth of God, and it's the true fulfillment that does not come to us through Moses and through the old covenant, but now it comes through Jesus, through Christ and his new covenant. Okay? So he is, in a sense, taking Moses' place as he teaches from the mountain. And he gives us, first and foremost, what we call the Beatitudes. Look at uh, verse 3 here. Jesus, the very first thing out of his mouth, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right out of the gate uh, is a very subversive teaching. And if you've been around church a long time, if you've read this before, you may not notice it as such. It doesn't seem, you know, all that subversive or that difficult because we're accustomed to it. But what Jesus says up front is absolutely counter to the world's way of thinking, It's absolutely counter to our own nature in the way that we think, and yet it's central to what Christianity is all about. Counter to the world, counter to our intuition, but central to our understanding of God. Because Jesus doesn't say, first and foremost, what our intuition might believe. Jesus did not sit down and say, blessed are the rich, and the powerful, and the brilliant, and the popular, and the attractive, and the healthy, or even the religious. It's not what he says. Jesus, the first thing out of his mouth, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, To be poor in spirit 
Um, it, it, that, that simply means that we, are, we recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt before God. It's the confession that I am sinful and I'm helpless to do anything about it. I cannot save myself. I come to God not full of any good thing that God is obligated to accept. I come to God empty because everything about me is dependent upon him. Everything about me is empty compared to the righteousness of God. Now, that's one of the hardest things for a human being to, to acknowledge because everything within us wants to believe that we can do this, that if you give me a standard, if you give me a set of rules, I can do it. That's the whole nature of religion in a nutshell. And yet what Jesus is saying right here is, there's something about us when we look in the mirror that we have to be willing to admit that we are empty before God, that there is something about God's righteousness that is so pure, so holy, so other, that we can't possibly measure up, even if we spend our entire lives trying to do it. And so we come to him poor, if we're willing to be honest. And in that case, we actually are open, empty to receive. And we receive a filling from God. We receive a wealth from God. Jesus says what the reward of poverty and spirit is. He says ours is the kingdom of heaven. That's the gift that we receive. That means you and I, when we're poor in spirit, we receive something so abundant that we can't even contain it within ourselves. We receive life in him. We become God's children. To be, to be a part of the kingdom of heaven means that we are now citizens, loved, cared for, nurtured by God, the king himself. We are under his rule and his reign, not just now, but forever. And so our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is in him and his grace. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And then connected to that, I believe, is connected, is, is the, the second beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, I see there a connection between the first and two, the, the first and second there, um, that, that God is not proclaiming blessing over those who mourn generally, although there's some truth for sure in that, but I think what Jesus is getting at here, blessed are you if you mourn over your poverty of spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, the acknowledgement, not just the acknowledgement of sin, but to be heartbroken over it. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you grieve the reality of sin, the sin that you see in yourself, but also the destructiveness of sin that we see in the world, that we recognize what this world was created to be, and yet now, what, what now it has become as a result of the, the curse of sin. And that ought to create in us a mourning, a grieving, a weeping. We look at, at the goodness of God's creation and how sin has absolutely tarnished it, and it should, abs it should ache us. It should bring us to a place that we mourn it. And the promise, of course, is for those who mourn sin will be comforted. See, that's the good news. This comfort is not a promise that Jesus will just come and, and kind of comfort you temporarily. There is a temporary, a, an earthly comfort that we receive from Christ. But see, this is more than that. Remember, if it's tied into the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's an eternal comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. That's, that's an eternal reality, that there is ultimately God making a new heavens and a new earth, the Bible promises us. Un, unstained by sin, not just our own, but the effects of sin altogether. A place where righteousness dwells, a place where Revelation says all things are made new. A place where there is no more weeping. 
or pain or sin or death forevermore. Does that sound comforting? If we mourn over sin, as we should, there's a comfort that we hold on to, a comfort that awaits us, that God promises for those who grieve it. And so let me just say this before we move on. If we somehow miss or skip these first two Beatitudes, poverty of spirit and mourning over sin, then we really end up missing everything altogether. And I say that confidently, that every good thing Jesus is going to tell us from here on out is good. It came from his mouth, but it does us no good because the only way we access this kind of life that he's calling us into is by acknowledging and weeping over our sin, our lostness, so that we might receive his grace in its place. And so if we miss these right here, then we miss the whole thing. We, at best, will become a people who try very, very hard to be religious and good, but ultimately there's a target we can never hit because the righteousness of God is something foreign to us. It must be given to us from outside of ourselves, and we've got to be poor in order to receive it. Does that make sense? So if we miss these, we miss everything. It's only by his strength that we receive what we desperately need as weak and needy people. Now, the next, the next several Beatitudes are, I'm going to break them down a little differently just for the sake of being linear. Because what Jesus is about to do, he's going to give us some, uh, some blessings that come from our relationship with people and blessings that show up in our relationship with God. Okay? And so I'm going to break these down. Uh, they, they really work out in terms of verses odd and even. So I want you to look at verses 5, 7, and 9 with me. How, God, how Jesus tells us our hearts ought to be toward people. 5, 7, and 9. He says, Blessed are the gentle, your Bible may say meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Do you, do you know anybody like this? I hope you do. I hope you know somebody that when you, when you picture their face, you see a humble, meek, gentle, merciful, peacemaking person. We all need people like that in our lives and, and in our midst. And, and the truth is, you don't have to probably stretch your imagination to think of a person like that. If you know one, then that person stands out. You uphold them as unique in this world, and the world doesn't really know what to do with people like this, what Jesus has just told us in these three verses. These kind of people are hard to figure out because they are unconcerned with self-advancement. They are, rather, they are concerned primarily with the good of other people, with the advancement of others, even if it means advancing beyond themselves. They truly care about the good of the other person more than they care about their own wants and needs. They don't demean others. They don't gossip. They're not mean on the Internet. Can I get an amen? Uh, They don't demean. they They don't hold grudges. They don't refuse to forgive. They're merciful when someone suffers and struggles. They, their heart breaks for them, and they lend a hand. This, this is the kind of person Jesus is talking about. Now, don't you want to be this kind of person? I mean, don't you want to be more this way? I do. But let me say, what Jesus is saying comes with a risk. And I want us to really feel the weight of this. When Jesus says, blessed are the meek, the humble, the gentle, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who seek to make peace between others, The risk that comes with being that kind of person, you probably know it, it's the risk of being stepped on. It's the risk in this world of being walked over, of being left out, of being pushed aside. 
Because, see, this is what Jesus is talking about here. This is not how the world works. This is not what you do if you want to get ahead. This is not how you get popular. This is not how big business succeeds. It's not by being this kind of person. And so the risk is that when we approach these beatitudes here of how we treat other people, that we have to acknowledge that what we probably feel in our own hearts, at least to some degree, is counter to this. All of us may agree, we nod our heads, say, yes, these are the virtues, these are the things that I want to be. This is the way my grandmother was, I want to be more like her, perhaps. But see, if I can stand up here and say, I want to be like verses 5, 7, and 9, I can say it with, with credibility, I do want it, but my heart betrays me in it. Because I know my own heart, I want to be popular, I want to be liked, I want to be accepted. I'm tempted to, to uh, cut corners in order for that to happen. I'm, I'm tempted to say on a Sunday morning what, you, what, what maybe you'd like to hear if it meant that you would like me more. And I can go on and on. That there is a, there's a desire in my heart that what Jesus says is wonderful, but I don't necessarily want it because of the risk that's associated with it. So how do we become this kind of person? It's not a, it's not a, swi- a switch that you can flip. And be encouraged in that, okay? It's not something that you can just wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to be meek, merciful, and a peacemaker. It's something that has to be developed at the heart level. And it comes, again, I'm going to say this again, it comes from being poor in spirit. Because what Jesus is calling us to, these are the qualities that made him who he was when he walked the earth. And it's something that we've got to draw on from him. It's not something we produce in our own intellect or in our own intuition. And so if a person is poor in spirit, that means, listen, we are not entitled to power. We're not entitled to having control over other other people. That we don't live our lives chasing popularity. We don't look down on people who have less than us. But rather we esteem them, just like we ought to esteem anyone that we come into contact with, because it's not about our self-advancement. It's about theirs. It's about their advancement. We want to bless them. And see, that just, that doesn't happen overnight. And so we recognize this. Everything Jesus is telling us, he's not saying to you and me, Kyle, be nice. We, that, we don't summarize the Beatitudes that way. I might be tempted to. It's easier. It's not be nice. It's be utterly different according to the heart of God. And that's something that we've got to beg for, to cry out for, if we want to become this way. So if I say I want to be this way, I have to acknowledge the risks. The world is not going to clap for me, applaud me, hoist me up on its shoulders if I seek this, and it won't for you either. But you see that the outcomes, Jesus says three, three things. He says we'll inherit the earth, we'll receive mercy, that's God's mercy, and we'll be called children of God. In other words, when you, with the heart of God, put others ahead of yourself, when you love other people this way, you get from God something insurmountably great. You get something that the world can't possibly give to you. And I think that's why Jesus elsewhere said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you want to be great, you become servant of all. Because in that, you receive what only God can give you. And he can give you far more than what the world can. So here we don't advance ourselves. We advance others for their sake and for God's sake. All right, that's how we relate to people, Jesus says. Now look at uh, the the even verses in between. Look at verses 6 and 8. This is what it means to be devoted to God. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Then in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Have uh, Have you ever been to the grocery store, grocery shopping, when you were really hungry? 
Was that not a terrible mistake? When you're really hungry and you're looking and you're walking up and down the aisles, you went in for bread and bananas, you walk out with six packs of double stuff Oreos. You know? And the reason I don't you know, the reason we do that is because uh, our hunger controls us. We don't like to admit it. We like to think we have more self-control over that. Maybe you do. I don't. Our hunger controls us. Our hunger leads us places that otherwise we may not intend to go. Now, I state that negatively, but here Jesus states it positively. That your hunger ought to control your relationship with God. And he says it like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be satisfied. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to love and obey God more than we want anything else in the world. We're starved without it. Jesus says that's our disposition. Um, one, of, one, of the, one of history's great preachers, a man named David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said that this verse right here is a great test of our love for God. He would always use this verse as a test when he was speaking to Christians to gauge kind of how they were in their devotional life. And so the questions that come are, are these. Do, do we enjoy God's blessings? Do we like having God around? Or do we pant for him? Do we hunger for God the way an empty stomach hungers for food? Longing to be filled. I can't think about anything else until I'm satisfied. How do we... How do we approach God. It's, it's probably one or the other. And I'll tell you guys the truth. We, we have this, this risk, this, this thing about the culture that we live in, our, our southern Christian culture, where frankly it's very easy to be a Christian and yet continually fill ourselves with junk that we kind of get by with, with a, a relationship with Jesus that may be surface only we're being filled with something, but not necessarily with him and his righteousness. And so Jesus is saying here, I'm not commending outwardly religious people. I'm commending the heart. Only from the heart can a person hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that is that if God's righteousness is the highest and sweetest virtue in your life, then Jesus has a promise to go with that. He says, you'll be satisfied. And that may be my favorite promise of all the Beatitudes. If you hunger and thirst for this, Jesus says, you'll get it. You'll get all you can handle. If you want God's righteousness, he will give it to you. Isn't that great? And then coupled with that is this blessing of being pure in heart. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'll, I'll reiterate this. Nobody can have a pure heart unless God gives it to you. I don't think there's ever been a person saved for Jesus himself, ever a person walking this earth who had a truly, genuinely pure heart, who never sinned. Only Jesus can stake that claim. And so Jesus has to give you a pure heart by his grace, but there is an application to be lived out here. It's not just something that we have to receive, yes, but it's something that we then, having received it, we apply it to life. This is from 1 John 3. John says, in 1 John 3, he says, we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him. Meditate on that verse a little bit. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. We will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. 
Everyone who is a Christian who fixes your hope on Jesus, you will purify yourself in this life just as Jesus is pure. Um, there will be such a, 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 um, such a devotion in your heart for the one who has saved you that you will want to be like him. You will want to follow in his steps. You want to live like Christ. In the time of Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, you, you, you notice this. It happens often. On multiple, multiple occasions, Jesus had run-ins with religious leaders who gave him a really hard time about ritual purity and cleanliness, that they would get on to Jesus about washing hands in a certain way, things you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath, um, uh, eating unclean foods. They would always make make a fuss about this kind of stuff with Jesus. Um, The truth is, Jesus, when he talks about purity, he bypasses all of that. I'm not aware of any place that Jesus stood up in front of a crowd and taught them hand-washing etiquette. Because Jesus' concern was not with external purity, it was with the purity of heart. That's what he says, blessed are the pure of heart. In heart, God is not impressed with externals. And I encourage us to really think about this, because there's so much in my heart that desires to look externally something, some, somebody, a religious person that you might be impressed. God, like a laser, sees right through that stuff. He's not impressed. God wants a certain kind of heart, a heart that rejects sin because our desire is fixated on him. Not on, not on religious duty, not on impressing others, but just a heart that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And that develops in us a pure heart, a heart that, that pursues Jesus because he is pure. Now, if you, here, here's the thing and what we've been told up to this point. If you actually live like this, having received his grace, now motivated, empowered by the Spirit to do this. I said this a minute ago, the world is not going to applaud you for this. Generally, there may be some agreement that it's better to be humble than prideful, sure. But if you're going to walk after the Lord Jesus like this, the world is not going to appreciate you, as we might hope that it would. And Jesus has a word for that. The truth is, if we're we're willing to, to look beyond ourselves... The Christians who have walked on this earth over 2,000 years have, have primarily been mocked and marginalized, not celebrated. That we have, a, we have a unique place in this free democratic society. We have a freedom of religion, and we praise God for that. But what we experience is not the norm in the world today, and it's certainly not the norm throughout Christian history. If you're going to walk after Jesus, you're going to suffer as a result. And Jesus has a word for us in that, verse 10. He says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, Blessed are you, Jesus says. Now hear this. Blessed are you, If for my sake, Jesus says, you are mocked, scorned, rejected, left out, hated, laughed at, lied about, turned against, bullied, beat up, fired, blacklisted, stolen from, imprisoned, or even killed, you're blessed. Anything that you experience that is suffering because you are a Christian, Jesus says you're blessed. And he doesn't just say you're blessed, he says rejoice and be glad. 
for your reward in heaven is great. Meaning, we have Jesus in this life, and he is more than enough for us right here and now, but we receive even more of Jesus in the life that is to come. Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'll receive even more of him in the fullness of his presence when I enter into glory. And therefore, there is a, a, a life, a joy that can actually bubble up over into uh, our, our hearts, even in the midst of pain and persecution and suffering and being marginalized. That no matter what happens to us, we can have an impervious joy, a joy that can't be manipulated, it can't be manufactured, it can't be faked. It's not a fake joy, okay? It's real. Because it comes from Jesus himself. If we are so, you know, you think back through these Beatitudes, if we're poor in spirit, and we know that we're a product of grace. If we're the kind of person who's humble and we don't seek our own self-advancement, if we're the kind of person who just hungers and thirsts for God above all things, then even if life turns against us, even if our circumstances turn sour, even if people hate us for our faith, we can have a joy because we've got so much of Christ bubbling over within us. That, that, that suffering would even be considered a blessing. The apostles, when they suffered, they left out of their suffering like doing cartwheels. They, were, they, were, they couldn't believe they'd be considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. They were overjoyed. And that may seem like such a foreign concept to us, but it's true. It's possible when all these other realities are at play. The Beatitudes. We, we've looked here at 12 verses. And you may have noticed this. Jesus hasn't given us any commands yet. The closest thing we get to a command is right there at the end. He says, rejoice and be glad. That's a command. But there's, there are no moral commands given in the Beatitudes. He simply proclaims blessing over the reality of what God desires our hearts to be. This is the kind of person God delights in, the kind of person God wants you to become. He created you for this. No commands have come into play yet. And yet I know probably for you, because it is for me, it's heavy, isn't it? This is heavy stuff. He hadn't really told us what to do. But when we hold these words up, when, when I hold up the Sermon on the Mount to my face like a mirror, I mean, it exposes me. It's heavy. I don't measure up. Every single thing that Jesus has mentioned, at best, I'm, I'm, I'm ticking off like the, the bottom rung of the ladder. I, I'm a little bit maybe that way, but not enough. I want to be more, right? It's exposing some of us don't feel like we're on the ladder at all in these areas. And so that's why we've got to recognize Jesus' purpose in the Sermon on the Mount. I mentioned this a minute ago. This is not moralism. This is not Jesus laying out a new rule book for us that if we'll follow these things, God will accept us. We're meant to feel the weight of this, but for a different reason. Um, years ago, 30, 40 years ago now, there was an English professor at Texas A&M University she, would, uh, she developed a project for her students where she gave them the Sermon on the Mount as an essay. They had to read it and then write a response paper to it, how they feel about it. Now, a lot of the students in her class had never read the Sermon on the Mount. They were not familiar with it. Some of them had never heard of it. And so they did the project. They uh, fulfilled the assignment, and the response paper she got back always made her chuckle. They were interesting to her. And, and it might be, for, for us, what we would expect. Here, here's, how the, here's how the responses tended to go. I did not like the essay titled, The Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel very guilty. It was no fun. No one can be expected to live like this. That's what our students wrote. And, you know, that, those responses are totally reasonable, aren't they? I mean, if you, just, if you take what Jesus said at face value, especially if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you take what he says at, at face value, my goodness. 
Nobody can do this. It may be a very noble uh, enterprise, this, this great message that he delivered, but who could be expected to live this way? It takes all the fun out of life. That's what one of her students wrote to her. And see, here's the, here's the truth. If Jesus were simply giving us moral guidelines on how to be better, more religious people, then we would all come to the Sermon on the Mount in the same way. We would come to it and say, no one can do this. The Sermon on the Mount, if you come to it as a moral framework for life, it will crush you. It crushes everybody in its path. Because Jesus is explaining to us the righteousness of God and what the righteousness of God requires of us, and there's not a person on this earth, save for Jesus, who could ever fulfill it. It crushes the kind of person who tries to use it as a moral framework for life. But see, here's the magic. Here's the secret of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just in the words that were spoken, but it's in who spoke them. And I want you to hear me when I say that. The beauty of the Sermon on the Mount is not just in the words spoken to us, written down on the page. It's in the person who spoke them. It's Jesus himself. That Jesus calls us to a certain way of life. And he didn't just drop the microphone and walk away and wish us good luck. Jesus himself fulfilled this way of life and then laid down his life so that the righteousness of God may be declared upon us, may be given to us. I quoted a minute ago uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm going to quote him again. He said this, When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, after reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7, our response should not be, How inspiring! Our response should be, God, save me. I can't do it. And so does Jesus expect us to live this way? Absolutely he does. But we can only become these kind of people if the very one who spoke these words fulfilled these words for us. And when Jesus spread out his arms on that cross, when, his, when he gave himself to be nailed down and crucified, he did it as the perfect man, the perfect embodiment of all of God's righteousness that God requires for humanity. Jesus fulfilled it, and through his death and resurrection, he now gives it to you. It's a gift that our lives might be shaped accordingly, but we can't do it the other way around. You can't become this kind of person. And so our hope today, I'm going to say it for like the ninth time, okay, because I need to hear it. Our hope is not in being good enough for Jesus. It's not being in good enough for God, being pure enough, being humble enough for God that he would love us and bless us. If I can just measure up. Some of us, we, we genuinely, we approach God that way. And I, wanna, I, want, I want you to hear the words of the gospel break that down for you. God needs to obliterate that belief system. You'll never be good enough for him. That's why Jesus came. Our hope today is that Jesus saves the poor in spirit. Those who are not full of ourselves, but those who admit that we are empty and we come to him for his filling grace. And then we trust that he'll shape us into the kind of people God desires for us to be. And in that case, if we believe that, if we come to Jesus on the basis of grace, not on the basis of a new law, then what happens is this. The, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't crush us. It makes us. It builds us because it's being achieved by the very power of God's Spirit within those who believe. Now, I mentioned this at the very beginning, these great speeches throughout American history. You know, all of those guys that I mentioned, Patrick Henry, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, they weren't just passionate orators. They were willing to die for what they believed in. Two of them did. 
I was going to say all three. I actually Wikipedia'd it last night. Patrick Henry died of a stomach ailment. Okay, so he doesn't count. But he was at least willing to say, give me liberty or give me death. Can't fault him for that. These guys were willing to lay it down for their cause. It wasn't just words for them. And you know, the same goes for Jesus, but even beyond that. You see, Jesus was willing to lay down his life. He certainly did, but not for a cause. Not for a cause. Not for a better way to, to live life. He laid down his life for you. That in all the places where we fall short, where we, where we see our emptiness and my, my own misery at falling short of these wonderful virtues, I look to the cross, not to the law. Where Jesus laid down his life so that I might be forgiven and that he might produce this kind of life in what is now a full person, not full of me, but full of him. That's what it is to be a Christian. And my, my need, as I stand here right now, I need to pray that God would make it so. That he would not just give me his grace for salvation, but that he would give me his grace to be a changed man whose heart is shaped like the heart of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray a, an honest prayer for my, for my sake and for ours. We don't belong here. We don't deserve to be here. We only belong in this room together because of your goodness given to us. And so, Lord, where there is any, within our hearts this morning, where there is any self-advancement, where there is any pride about our good works or our religious achievements, where there is any fullness of self, Father, would you take the, the precious words of Jesus and would you empty us out? that we might pour out all of self, Lord, it gets us nowhere, and that we might be filled by grace with all that you have to give. Trusting, Lord, that when you said, ours is the kingdom of heaven, we shall be comforted, we shall see you, God, we shall be called children of God, we will inherit the earth, we will be filled with your righteousness, Father. Those are promises for those who are empty to receive them. And so, Father, would you do that great work in us this morning? Pierce through me in these places, Lord, that, that I, I have a, maybe a Christian facade, but really I'm full of self. And, Father, I pray that, that for me, for us as we sit here, that you would fill us with the very person of Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. Lord, if, if we woke up this morning, even just in the very back of our minds, thinking, what do I need to do today for God to love me? What do I need to do today to be good enough? What do I need to do today so that those around me in church will think well of me? Lord, would you remind us, refresh us in your precious gospel that does not tell us to do, but tells us what has been done. Jesus. Our hope is not in the words, the teachings of Jesus, but in the person of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that you didn't raise the bar up high for us and then walk away, but that you were lifted up high on the cross. That we might have life in your name. So Father, don't, uh, I, I pray this. I pray that I don't love your grace and think that I don't have to become anything beyond that. But, but I trust today and I, I trust for all of us. Let's pray this. That, Lord, because of your grace, we would, we would be diligent all the more to become the kind of people that reflect you to the world. Make us the kind of people 
who are meek, who are merciful, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who mourn over our sin. We don't, we don't excuse it or become accustomed to it, but that all these things would become true of our hearts because we have received you and we only want more and more of you. All that you're willing to pour out to us in this life, Father, we pray give it to us now. And we ask it in Jesus' name.